Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and my licentious co-host, Oliver Jones. This conversation is with Dr. James Field. James is a leading scientist in the field of synthetic biology. He set up LabGenius while completing his PhD at Imperial College London. LabGenius is a venture-backed technology company harnessing AI to discover high-value synthetic proteins. They are currently working in partnership with leading multinationals to create novel therapies for unmet clinical needs and with the UK Ministry of Defence to produce so-called advanced materials. James blows our mind with his insights into synthetic biology and LabGenius' potential applications. He gives us an honest evaluation of the challenges of becoming a CEO from a scientist. We also discuss gene editing and CRISPR and its ethical implications in this brave new world. If you like sci-fi and want to know why ruby red grapefruit is red, you'll enjoy this one. So without further ado, we bring you Dr. James Field. And hello, everyone. We're live in London with Dr. James Field from Lab Genius. Uh, James, thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. I understand you and Ed go go way back to uh, your days at Imperial doing biology, but that is where the, your paths crossed. And I think I think I think he ended up uh, hosting a podcast somewhere while you went off to do um, extraordinary things with Lab Genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I very much um, got my two one and escaped. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so we want we want to get into the meat of um, lab genius, and then on some topics of the ethics of of gene editing. Um, but by way of introduction, I thought it'd be useful if you could give our listeners a sort of a potted history of your of your academic background leading into lab genius, uh, and with that perhaps a brief primer on the on synthetic biology, which is your specialty. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as exactly as you say, Ed and I did undergraduate biology together at Imperial and from what I remember of it um, we would sit there in lectures and biology back then was predominantly taught as a kind of descriptive subject so we'd sit there in lectures and learn about uh, the winter foraging habits of the lesser known bearded European Hmm. uh, mole and (laughs) (laughs) that was semester one I think. I think it depends on what units you chose yeah mine very much learnt that way. Right right so you know really really absorbing the corpus of knowledge of humanity of, of describing the myriad of amazing organisms that, that exist um, from very passionate biologists it was incredible but but fundamentally the thing that i was interested in is how do you start to engineer biology did you do evolutionary uh, development with almond i did i remember i did particularly badly in that module it was really hard but that, that was probably when i got the first inklings that there was something in um i guess evolutionary algorithms and that topic and its broader application. Yeah, and it's fascinating to, to really look at how humans have grappled with this, not just in our recent history, but but you know over the last 10,000 years. So maybe it's useful for, for your listeners, I'll just kind of outline some of the, some of the approaches that we've, we've been using to, to, to grapple with, with engineering life um, through the ages. Obviously, it's, a, it's all started with Darwin and, and, and his description of um, how life evolves really through this process of, of natural variation and, and, and selection. And about um, somewhat something like 10,000 years ago, uh, humans started the, their longest experiment of seeing how we could start to take that process of, of selection and, and start to use it to en- engineer life. So, you know, that's that process of selective breeding is the thing that has given us, uh, well, taken something like the wolf and given us the chihuahua. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but but of course that's ten thousand years. That's that's really slow. I guess the advent of agriculture got people doing selective breeding of, of wheat and corn and whatever it might be, and that's probably where our ancestors were sort of dabbling in it. Yeah, and 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 really, it's kind of the big the big shift came when when people realised, hey, one of the essential components of this process is this the mutability of the genome, the the importance of of changing the substance of life and then laying on top of that selection pressures. So there was this fantastic study that happened after, I think it was after the Second World War when humans started irradiating uh, plants in order to, to increase that, that rate of mutagenesis and, and select um, uh, new plant varieties. Um, I mean, even if you go on if you go on Google Earth, you can see these incredible, what they used to call them atomic gardens. So these absolutely massive sites where they would put a, put a source of radioactivity at the middle and irradiate thousands of plants growing around them. And if you've ever eaten a ruby red grapefruit, that's where, uh, where that originally comes really? from. Really? But d- while, while they had the radiation, were they applying these selective pressures at the same time yeah, to encourage the, the genesis in the, in the right direction? That, that's exactly right. And, and this kind of approach is very much like taking a sledgehammer to a genome. So, so right. you've got this, the sledgehammer, which is your source of radioactive material. And, and it was some poor soul's job to, to walk around these concentric circles of plants and picking out the interesting varieties. Interesting. And I wonder what happened to his genome in the process. Well, I think, I think they did <laughs> have a way of... Predictably uh, cancer-laden. And <laughs> well, so yeah, I mean, humans, humans like understanding of, of how this, uh, uh, this technology also impacts on our cells is, is something that's matured over the years. Mm-hmm. But I think it's in, the, in the case of the atomic gardens, I'm pretty sure there was a way of, of shielding uh, whoever had to, to go and look at the plants. It does seem very rudimentary now, but we had to go through that process to get to where we are today. It was those kind of slightly blunt force experiments that have led us to a better understanding. Um, so where did it start to lead off to then in terms of how people moved on from sort of agricultural engineering to? Yeah, so so obviously with these atomic gardens, you can take your sledgehammer to the genome. And really what happened after that is, is the sledgehammers just started getting smaller. So there's this process called um, PCR, polymerase chain mm. reaction. Uh, in its most basic form, it enables you to transport genes from one organism to another. Really, that's a kind of technology that kick-started genetic engineering and the ability to take really high-value molecules and uh, like human insulin, start manufacturing them inside a microbe. But the really cool bit is that you could take that process of polymerase chain reaction and make a few modifications. And rather than perfectly replicate genes, you would imperfectly replicate genes. So this was the first time you could take your sledgehammer and rather than apply it to the whole genome, just apply it to single genes. So that was another of these quantum leaps in 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 man's ability to to engineer life. And was that using sort of um, uh, viral vectors and ligases and stuff like that? Is that so? The the process of of error-prone PCR really it works by taking an enzyme called a polymerase, um, which which is a naturally occurring enzyme which amplifies or or duplicates DNA. And during that replication process, you add in a few other chemicals that reduces the performance or, or the fidelity of that enzyme. So it, it accidentally starts making mistakes, H- higher um, rates of mutation than you would see in natural systems. Now, what, once you've got the, that new genetic material that contains these, these errors, that's where those other interesting enzymes that you mentioned, the ligases, come in. And that, that's how you sort of port them back into 
a, a living system to, to actually see what does this new mutated DNA actually do. Okay, so and by the time we started to, to leave off at undergrad level, what kind of gave you the inkling to move forward into the master's? Where did the master's lead you and how did that sort of take you into the, to your, your PhD and then into Lab Genius, as it were? Yeah, great question. So that process, that transition actually happened before the master's. And in my third year, there was this module called Synthetic Biology, Undergraduate Synthetic Biology. I think it was the first year that Imperial actually ran that module. And for the first time, the lecturers posed us a question, rather than learning what these biological components did, they asked us a question, what would you build if you could start taking these biological parts and, and building new things? That was when I got really excited by by the potential of the field and, and really, for the first time, thought of actually pursuing a a career, a career in the area. That the evil g- genius within you. <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. Um, I've always loved science fiction. And uh, before studying biology, I, I very nearly studied in- English literature. The reason that I chose biology is because at the end of the day, no matter how how much you love science fiction, it's always a thought experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, but then this was the, this was that pivotal moment in my life when I realised it didn't have to be. The thought experiments that you were running in your mind, suddenly you, you could actually uh, take the, the tools of synthetic biology and start to test them in the, yeah. in the real world. At the end of the module, we did this thing called a mini iGEM project. And really, the background to that is that there is this international competition for students to engineer new biological systems, new genetically engineered machines called the iGEM competition. And uh, in, at the end of the module, we as, as individual teams had to come up with our own uh, idea for for building a new biological system that could do something useful and after i finished my undergraduate i actually entered the this is 2009 entered the igem competition uh, as as a member of the imperial college team and we spent a summer building uh, a new organism went to mit competed in the competition and and really that was the thing that then stimulated me to go on and do the masters what was the masters then in the masters was in systems and synthetic biology okay and it was a research masters and i was i was in this really fortunate position where imperial said james we will pay for you to do this masters we'll cover your course fees and not only that but you can do whatever research you like so this was a pretty phenomenal moment for me because i just finished at the igem competition and uh, I wouldn't have been able to finance doing that master's myself. And Imperial was saying, not only could I participate in the master's free of charge, but also I could effectively start my own research project and run, and run that research project for a year. Uh, and, and that was a really phenomenal opportunity. And really, that was the, the impetus for me to, say, to start thinking, hey, actually, I can start doing my own research. And in terms of, uh, so to just give people a, a crude background of synthetic biology as it was then and as it's becoming known today, um, what does it focus on? Because, I mean, I think that probably leads nicely into lab genius. It's a great question. So the way I see synthetic biology is it's actually a search problem. It's a data problem. And, right. and I'll give you some context to, to that uh, analysis. There is this term that we call sequence space. Certainly, it's a term that we use at, at, at Lab Genius, and, and we use the term sequence space to describe any possible DNA sequence that could theoretically exist. Right. So it's an infinite space because there are an infinite number of DNA sequences that could exist, and any organism that could exist exists somewhere in that theoretical space. Now, the technology 
that changed the way that humans think about life is gene synthesis. So mm. the ability to synthesize DNA sequences completely de novo, so to make DNA sequences to order that never existed before. It's a technology that's existed for quite a while, actually, but the big change is the decrease in cost. So you can sit at your computer now and type out a DNA sequence, um, a fairly long one, and within a few days that will be on your desk by mail order. So the cool thing... When you say on your desk, what's the deliverable of that sequence? How do you receive? You've, you receive a, a tube that contains uh, an infinitesimally small pellet that you probably can just about see with your naked eye that contains <laughs> millions of copies of your custom DNA sequence that wow. has been built molecule by molecule to your specification. And, and building it... Sorry, I'm, I realise I'm going through kind of a rigorous series of, of sort of small questions, but to, to build it um, to your to your satisfaction or order, what's what's that like, and is that improving still, or can they just you know use the same sort of technology that you said they used to have available to them? Yeah. So within the area of DNA synthesis, it segments down massively depending on your requirements. So. If you want a short piece of single-stranded DNA, it's highly commoditized. It's only one or two pounds. If you want uh, a very long sequence of double-stranded DNA, you're probably going to pay significantly more. So, it, And this actually ties into this idea of sequence base and how you search it. So because you can order pretty much any DNA sequence that you want, that means that you can traverse any point in this theoretically infinite space, which means that if you knew the DNA sequence for... Uh, some mythical organism that you wanted to create, there is no reason why you couldn't make that DNA sequence today. Do you remember in 1993 when they said they were going to try and recreate dinosaurs? And I remember how worried I got as a seven-year-old that these idiots in a lab were going to make a T-Rex. And then make a film about it. They did make a film about it. I remember I watched that. (laughs) Yeah, they've made a a reboot now. (laughs) Ollie and I were actually speaking about this on the train, which was that question of exactly what you've just addressed, which is theoretically, if you know the code bases... Can you can you print an exact replica to order of, of you know of small you know organism and its DNA and and is that how it works and I guess we came up with the idea that essentially if it's base pairs of DNA probably so you're right so the challenge isn't actually fabricating the DNA if you know the sequence the real problem that the whole of synthetic biology faces is how do you know what the right sequence is and and actually the reason for that is because if you were to imagine what the topology of this sequence space would look like, the viable parts of it, it's like I'm trying to imagine habitable planets adrift in the universe. They're few and far, far between. Mm. And actually, even though this sounds like a really theoretical concept of sequence space and topologies and landscapes, actually it's something, funnily enough, that, that you actually understand from birth. So this is a slight slight divergence but the phenomenon of human sexual attraction or sexual attraction in in any organism really is a function of the topology of sequence space so use that chat up line at Soho House that's a great line for you to use (laughs) but building on that can you explain that yeah yeah. yeah, absolutely I'm not going to just leave it there (laughs) just end interview walk away Uh, right so I I guess the question is have you ever thought about why humans are attracted or in in the main are humans are attracted to other humans well i guess people divert to um well i guess technology would have you defer to just looks and algorithms uh sort of purists would talk about pheromones um i haven't heard it described as dna before but i would be fascinated to work out yeah so the reason that organisms by default 
reproduce with the same members of their own species is is because say if you were to try and reproduce with another organism that's that's non-human the probability of of you being able to have some kind of functional offspring or chimera some chimera Mm -hmm. is is really small and and so from an evolutionary perspective it doesn't make sense to expend resource in that way but if it was possible and if you could productively produce some kind of offspring uh, with another species then there's no reason to say that instinctively you wouldn't want to so this whole phenomenon of attraction really is 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 your understanding of what the topology of this space looks like interesting but how is it that our, our genome actually points us in the right direction yeah so how so your question is how how can you genetically encode instructions of the topology of this theoretical yes. landscape it's fascinating and i think the answer is that knowledge can be directly hard coded into dna wow. so uh, all of your instincts that's that's not that's not something that you sort of feel by coincidence but it's knowledge that's hard coded into mm-hmm. you is this a bit like um uh, baby horses or uh, antelopes being able to stand up absolutely easily, yeah. uh, right from birth yeah and i and i guess that one of the interesting aspects of the human brain is is that there is this trade-off between hard-coded knowledge and world models that you assemble yourself and Uh. and the human brain is obviously um, wired such that it can maximize the ability to create new world models Mm -hmm. but there are there are some world models that that it doesn't make sense to to learn de novo like uh, the rules of attraction uh what's the psychological term that jordan peterson used archetypes so I wonder, because they touched on the subject from a, a different point of view, which is like psychological archetypes, which is like innate characterizations of narrative and story and overcoming adversity or whatever it is, but something that just sits within you that doesn't need explaining it essentially comes from uh, from birth and, and you immediately understand and, and sort of uh, connect with that story. And it's quite interesting to hear you come from a biological point of view of actually it could be just hard-coded. Uh, what I guess the interesting thought experiment would be is if you um, then started to tamper with that genetic material, how the behavior of the person would change. But with this in mind, and the idea that you, you have, well, I guess a lot of power, a lot of power, you, you couldn't start testing these out on people. You couldn't go to Ollie and I, I'm actually gonna start tampering with your DNA to see if my hypothesis is right. Um, so how do you build, I guess, the application into your, your, your libraries of proteins you're collecting and, and the thought experiments you conduct because I guess like any study we had to do at Imperial it's normally on sort of C. elegans or some kind of uh, nematode worm um, so in terms of your understanding moving forward in terms of where you can apply this technology what does that look like because you can't yeah so so I get the question being how do you start to explore this this theoretical landscape yes. on a practical level and at what level can you explore it right so when I signed up to do a PhD at, at, at Imperial the uh, the thought of the day was that you could directly transpose engineering principles onto biology and that's how that you would engineer life. And that is correct, but there's a lot of nuance to it. So th- the approach that we all started taking is we started taking these well-characterized biological parts and, and knitting them together and expecting them to produce these new engineered organisms that would work directly as some computational model would predict. And nine out of the 10 of them, or 99 out of 100 of them, all failed to work. And the reason for this is because biological systems are really complex. And the probability of you rationally being able to engineer something that works the first time is incredibly low. So the approach that I sort of started taking 
during my PhD is how could you take a more data-driven approach to start exploring sequence space? So this brings us to the synthetic DNA libraries that you just mentioned. And really the approach there is rather than testing one synthetic DNA sequence at a time, we would t test trillions. And do you mean as a computer simulation? No. No? In real life. Okay. IRL. Can, yeah, IRL. <laughs> is there a, a, any rationale for computational modeling and, and scenario modeling or is that? It's a great question. Uh, the thing that I'm most excited about is this concept of empirical computing. So pure computational simulation is perfect for systems that you understand very well and collecting data is incredibly expensive. There are a subset of problems which are so complex that we can't accurately model in silico, but collecting real world data is very cheap. And for those that subset of problems, you can deploy this principle of empirical computing to great effect. And at a high level, the concept behind this is that you come up with experimental hypotheses computationally. So you have you train an AI to, to, to generate hypotheses that you then test in parallel in the real world. So within the context of our work, our AI will this come... This is the wonderful Eva. This is the wonderful Eva. Yeah, she female AI. Gender neutral. Yeah. Eva will generate trillions of experimental hypotheses. Uh, then these get actually tested in the real world. And then we port the data back into the computer to understand why some things work and why some things don't work. And the beauty of this approach is it enables you to start building up models of the world that you would have never been able to do through pure simulation. Mm. Uh, so you're, so th this is really a knowledge generation engine, and and it uh, and it applies not just to biology, but for a whole suite of different problems in different right. domains. Is that is it possible to give an example within the world of biology or within the yeah, world? Yeah, well, within it was specific to some, something that you're doing at Lab Genius. Absolutely. So let's take. Um, I'm trying to think of the right the right problem to describe. One of the problems that we're looking at is protein stability. So, whenever you when I speak to most people about proteins the first thing they think of is a sausage and bacon mm -hmm. um but proteins delicious, delicious sausage <laughs> and bacon but in addition to being sausage and bacon proteins are also these nanoscale machines that are the actuators of life and w the platform that we're building at lab genius is is really about engineering new useful proteins so one of the classes of proteins that we're interested in developing are proteins that are more stable so this is useful if you want to start deploying proteins in environments that are particularly harsh. And one example is, is, your, is your gastrointestinal tract. So this is an environment that's obviously evolved over mm -hmm. millions of years to specifically break down proteins. So the problem that in this instance we're asking Eva is to work out how to design proteins that are robust within that environment. And the application space for that is really the delivery of, of new therapeutics into that environment that you can't currently create. And and by that, I mean, would cancer be one of the main targets of that? The... Or just any gastrointestinal issues? I guess. Yeah, the, the, the most obvious ones are, are issues around um, inflammatory disorders of the, of the GI tract. Right. Um, Crohn's disease and ex this exactly, kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, but but there are there are many, many other you know, examples. Now, the, the beauty of the of the system that we're building is uh, it's a generic platform. So provided you can pose the problem that you're trying to solve in a high throughput way, 
you can be off at the pub and the system is is effectively mm-hmm. searching through sequence space to find find an appropriate solution to it. And then when that solution is found on, on just sort of shifting slightly to the commercial side, the way Lab Geniuses works is that you you sell that information to well, I guess in the case of digestive issues to a a pharmaceutical company so the question of of how do you extract value from from this kind of technology the answer to that is is that for every problem that you work on there's probably a different optimal point to extract value and that very much depends on the application exactly in this instance uh, with with the example of GI stable therapeutics, you would never want as a technology company, you would never want to go through the the pain of taking that molecule through all the way to the market itself. Because it takes forever. Mm. Because it takes. So you would you would partner with a with an expert who who would have have the ability to to do that. And really, this the the platform nature of of this technology really means that that is the optimal approach to take. So you might be working with one day with a pharmaceutical company and the next day with an industrial enzymes company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think really this speaks to the way that biology really does apply to so many disparate verticals. Is it a winner takes all that if you design the best protein nanocage to um, operate in a hostile environment like the gut, that you can suddenly go to vets, doctors, this, that, the other, any pills that go into an in, you know, intestinal tract or you go actually um, the gut of uh, a different animal is a different pH, and so we suspect this will work, and then suddenly cows all have Yeah, so drugs. the question is, to what extent does data network effects give you a competitive advantage? Yeah, so when you're trying to engineer new proteins, every time you undertake a set of experiments, you're extracting both narrow and very broad design rules. So the broad design rules say, here are some really interesting phenomena that apply to every project that we ever do. And it may be things like these specific sequences never work or they always work. Mm. And the narrow design rules are very application focused. So in this example of trying to engineer more stable proteins, it would be we find that these sequences for this within this specific application space, these sequences, if they're if they're present, always result in a failed protein. So that kind of knowledge enables you to both apply those broad design rules to everything you do but the narrow design rules uh, to this specific set of problems that you're that you're facing uh, and and the beauty the beauty of this approach is that the system becomes more intelligent with every experiment that it conducts mm-hmm. and this is a fundamentally different way to the way in which humans conduct science so if you're working in a traditional research lab knowledge is accrued in, in individual human brains that are then forgotten or, or lost when you retire um, but the beauty of this system is is you retain more information and actually the complexity of that information uh, is greater as well. So when you're trying to understand something, often it's it's you have to, as a human, translate that into some kind of hypothesis that can be verbalized and communicated. It, when a machine tries to understand something, it can understand the same phenomena in a far more nuanced way. So we, we've done this really interesting thing where you discover something computationally and then you make that hypothesis human readable. And as a human, you can read it, but the hypothesis is so long and nuanced, it doesn't have any meaning for you. And this this is this is a really exciting opportunity because it means that you can start to understand the world in a way in which we as, as humans can't. So you're breaking through this mm. traditional cognitive barrier to get a more nuanced understanding of the world. And then how does that get translated to us so that we can understand it? Well, the beauty is that you don't need to. So if you're operating a discovery process, as as the user, 
you don't necessarily have to care um, exactly how something works. You just have to be delivered a project that does a product that does work. So say for example, your computer. Uh, to be to to enjoy the benefits of the computer, you don't have to understand mm-hmm. um, exactly exactly how it works. Now you probably could if you spent uh, you know a few weeks looking at all the different parts and, and seeing how they fit together. But if there's a requirement for either one or several people to understand a product in order for it to be made, then it creates this complexity barrier on on the products that humans as a species can create and. For me, one of the things I'm most excited about is how we as a species start to build uh, systems that will break through this cognitive barrier and deliver us um, products and services that are more complex than any one or group of human individuals could comprehend. Do you think there's a danger that when you set an, an AI on this task and you give them, you know, a, I don't know whether you call it parameters or a subset of rules for them to, to search for a solution that they can come up with a solution that perfectly matches what you've asked for, but at the same time it has uh, sort of additional things that you haven't asked for, but then nevertheless, according to the AI, make up part of the the solution. And then suddenly you're releasing these things that you don't, because you, you're unable to understand them, you're getting more than you bargained for. I'm, I'm kind of thinking sure, sci-fi sure. a bit Sure, I mean, here. you ask a computer to... Uh, eradicate human suffering and it does it by eradicating all humans is, exactly is, is yeah, yeah, yeah 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 well it's, it's that, that paperclip analogy that they the paperclip machine i think this, it's a really interesting question and i think it's it's one probably best looked at through the lens of narrow versus general ai certainly in our world where uh we're in the kind of the narrow ai world so so yeah. we're trying to build a system to solve very simple tasks well very complex task but but um, very specific tasks, I should say, yeah. then then I don't think that's a significant risk. Where it's a system that you're asked, if, if it was a very general and powerful system that you were asking to solve a similar problem, then mm-hmm. maybe you have, yeah, then, then you really have to start thinking about uh, thinking about that. But I think that's, what's interesting is, is that interplay then between humans and machines and understanding mm. it's, it's actually the role of the human to really sensibly set the questions and it, it'll be the role of the machines to to supply us with answers. Whether we decide to to use those answers, then is is up to us. Um, and and when you ask the questions, are you approached? So sort of shifting back against the commercial side, um, are you approached by? Because I understand that you're working with the MOD on specialised products for them. Do they approach you saying, "We want to make this. Can you ask your machine to to work it out for us?" Or do you work it out and then try and broker its people it's been both right and and really that question goes back to how do you want to extract value from 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 it as a technology if you wanted to there are, there are two possible routes you could take you could either say this is this is going to be the tool that everybody uses to engineer proteins and will provide it under some kind of technology license or you say this is a very powerful tool that we'll keep in house and we'll develop our own pro- products that we'll take to market under partner collaborations mm-hmm. In, in reality, where these tools are most effectively deployed is where you can solve a hair on fire problem for somebody else. And so understanding what those problems are really does require you to go deep into a specific sector, really get close to the customer, understand their pain point, and actually try and dovetail that with your financing timelines. Yeah. Because it may be the case that 
you have to show some significant commercial traction within a defined period of time, which then again limits the the markets that you can that you can tackle and the opportunities that that you can you, you can probably address. Can you give us some examples of um, products that have, are actually in the market or nearing? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I would say none of the products that we've worked on are are being in the market today, and you know, any products we're working on are probably quite a long way right. off, off being um, in the market. But you're allowed to talk about them. Um, yeah so we we were financed by the uh, uk ministry of defense to undertake a a range of different uh different projects um exploding pens (laughs) (laughs) i I think i think uh the interesting part about that is the the uk mod have been thought leaders globally around how you can use synthetic biology to develop new protein-based materials so this is extending the application space of proteins away from the traditional markets like industrial enzymes, like pharmaceuticals, mm. and thinking of how you can build new interesting uh, materials with them. Due to the blue sky natures of those projects, they are a long way off market and the markets are often speculative. Um, but I think it's, it's often that investment by government that, that does end up creating those markets. A prime example being, you know, the, the internet was a product of DARPA, the DARPA finance, DARPAnet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a question I had, which I think you built a really interesting point, which is more than ever, we need to understand the applications and uses of technology and then the human mind as a kind of um, steerer or driver of, of what a computer is good at, which is computation. And I don't expect you to take a, a big dive into this, but are you excited about the potential for maybe quantum search? So how does quantum computing potentially impact on what we're doing That's yes right so compute is is a really key part of the platform in the sense that you're generating every time our, our platform uh, tries to address a problem it generates millions and millions of data points so so unique sequences of dna each of which have a fitness and then it's the job of the computer to understand why some sequences are better than others and and extract the underlying design rules. Now, that's a really tough job to do. If it's the case that quantum computing enables us to crunch data more effectively, then that becomes very exciting. Certainly, I would say that's probably uh, a little bit off for us in, in the sense that a lot of the challenges today that we're facing are more around how do you robustly generate the data how do you build the workflows to port the data between the lab and and, and the computational domain uh, but but certainly if it's a case of quantum computing enables us to to solve compute problems that conventional computing um, has had historically has historically had challenges with then that could be very exciting and to go back to a bit that ollie i guess was quizzing you on um there are the commercial applications that are finding you and that you're naturally finding. What is your vision for Lab Genius? Because I always think about this on the train on the way up. And if I was in your position, I would almost loathe to sell out of the company in the next five to ten years because there's just it could be a lifetime of work, of exciting, really meaningful work. So in terms of your vision for it and where you'd like to see it start heading or, or your own applications, what would that look like? So I think my vision for for lab genius is when i when i'm sort of making my way around london or a foreign country or or, or anywhere in the world i always stop and take note of of the life around me and and really take inspiration from the beauty beauty of life 
and I see that as these points in sequence space where evolution has solved hard problems. So if you're looking at a tree and you see the exquisite way in which leaves are arranged, arrayed to kind of capture sunlight, regardless of, of the weather or, or anything like that, uh, that, that's to me like a solution. And I see Lab Genius as a vehicle through which we can explore sequence space to find new solutions to problems that are really meaningful to humanity and problems that we can't solve otherwise. So certainly in the short to medium term, I'd love to use the company as a vehicle to, to create some interesting, new, effective treatments to unmet clinical needs. And then in the longer term, you could really start thinking about not just engineering proteins, but how this same approach could apply to cells, to tissues, to organs, to individuals, to populations, to ecosystems. Well, do to you scale the matter? Up? Could you could you scale the applications of matter up? I know once you can start with proteins, and I guess if you can build them in a stable fashion and then recombine them into more complicated proteins. So the beauty of engineering with DNA is the context dependency of the programming matter. So you could come up with a synthetic DNA sequence that if you put it in the right context terraforms a whole planet or you could take a single sequence and that sequence might just create a life-saving drug. The reason for that is because of the way in which life replicates so you, you, you can access emergent complexity from infinitesimally small starting points. With that with that ability comes a huge amount of responsibility. So, you know, I'll hasten to add that the problems that we work on are, are developing new pr- proteins in these kind of non-replicating systems. But if you can properly, properly harness um, this kind of technology, then you can start thinking about how, how, you could, how you could harness the emergent complexity of biology to start solving ecosystem problems, planetary pl- problems. I guess, I mean, We'll come on to the ethical side in a minute, but but just just briefly, who is the arbiter over what solutions you're allowed to consider approaching? For instance, you could be approached by any company who wanted a specific solution, but that could be a solution that is totally nefarious in intention. Is there regulation in place as to who can do what? Yeah, there there is a lot of regulation in place and 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 i think the regulation is largely effective i think the way i i view these technologies is not so much posing new questions but they certainly mean that the sophistication of the solutions that we can generate are vastly improved so it's more the case that these technologies enable us to to solve really challenging problems um meaningful problems that, that we couldn't previously in terms of the nefarious applications it's a hell of a lot easier to go and 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 buy a, bag, a set of chemicals than it is to um, engineer a new a new biological mm-hmm. um, problem. Mm-hmm. And are there any, um, as you see it, because I guess it's a, a bit of a theoretical space. I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but the idea that we can introduce um, upgrades. So this is a really interesting question, and and I think it goes back to thinking about the mutability of life, not just in terms of evolving uh, a new organism towards some end but thinking about what does it mean uh, in terms of the self so we're all we all are both the beneficiaries but also we we also suffer from evolution in the sense that darwinian evolution is a process that we say that it has scars in the sense that it's like asking a master painter to paint you a new masterpiece but only giving them an old brush and and a child's drawing in the sense that it can only work with what it's already got Mm. and so 
evolution is the same in the sense that the human body is is fraught with these scars of evolution so for example you know we've evolved to climb trees and so have too many feet bones in our feet and, and suffer from fallen arches the idea that you would have the same opening be used for eating and breathing is is just stupid but it's just a function of our of our evolutionary history the fact that giving birth could actually be something that in de- is, is is historically one of the, the major causes of 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 disease and ill health uh, because you're you're fighting this compromise between brain size and the ability to uh, walk on two feet. Evolution is, is full of compromises, and when you start thinking about the mutability of life, you ask questions like, "These are problems that I've inherited. Do I have a right to to change them?" And I think that's where it gets really exciting in in the sense that I think that at some point in the future, when gene editing is is very safe and very established, people will probably start thinking of themselves more as a blank canvas in the finished masterpiece. Interesting. And the idea that you can iterate over the course of your life in a biological sense and you're not just sort of determined and that's your lot. Um, Because I I saw an interesting video that was talking about, um, I guess, the metabolic cost of something. So we could have stronger muscles, better eyesight, you know, all these sort of beneficial features that we didn't evolve because there was such a, a, a caloric cost uh, to our ancestors and it just wouldn't have been practical to have that trade-off whereas nowadays obviously we have calories at will and in theory we could um, upgrade our systems to be able to take on uh, or to be more athletic or, or more capable or think for you know longer stretches of time but we're not as you say we carry the the Darwinian essentialism um, so it could be quite interesting because we're not short on the ability to to now sustain that um and the positive applications are are exciting as they are terrifying because i imagine they'll start by sweeping up the the genetic issues first and then what justifiably becomes an issue it could be that your hair falls out when you're 50 and actually that's something you've been afflicted by that impinges on your right to be happy and therefore you get to deserve treatment for it so um do you know what you think the time scales of these conversations will be yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I think I think the way I see it as a as a phenomenon is it's this process is really about how humans start to make individual humans start to make their own way through sequence space. How we start traversing as individuals um, around that that hyperdimensional space, and exactly as you say, the first wave of of changes will be uh, uh, what you might call corrections of inborn diseases of of. Of, of the genome and then extend into uh, after that um, something you might call in enhancements. The big challenge with any of this is that the, the ability to introduce new DNA sequences into the right place in the genome uh, with accuracy is still not good enough to make this a routine and a routine procedure. The technologies that have come to the fore over the last few years, namely CRISPR and, and, and others, that have improved our ability both to selectively delete and insert uh, new gene sequences ha- have tremendously changed the landscape in terms of the art of the possible. But we are still a long way off being able to engineer ourselves with in, in a safe and reliable way. How far off is a long way off? Um, because I listened to, um, in preparation for this, the, the Sam Harris uh, podcast episode with Jennifer Doudna, who I think is credited as one of the 
um, scientists who discovered Cas the Cas9 protein, which is from which they developed the CRISPR technology. And um, I'd recommend that podcast episode for people who want a, a primer on, on gene editing. Um, but when he posed the question to her about um, the ethical issues that arise with gene editing, her response was, well, it's a long way off, which seems like an irresponsible answer because given the rate of innovation and the level of innovation that we're achieving uh, nowadays, it seems like we ought to have principles in place before we actually we get to the, to the technology being realised. We ought to have the systems in place to regulate and process them rather than doing it on the fly once the technology arrives. Yeah, so I mean, there are people who are trying to gene edit themselves today. Right, I was going to um, say that, that unfortunately, it's the guy a, in the Spider Man. Well, yeah, but it, it, it comes down to um, we could set ourselves a load of rules and regulations, and if another country becomes a specialist in that's having it. no rules and that's, regulations, that's they it. may. Like, if the US and UK behave responsibly, it, who's to say that some other, other countries that I don't want to be named in case I get nerve agented? Um, <laughs> sure, sure. I'm going down to, this is going down to a one host show. <laughs> um, For example. Well, um, it, it does raise a, a good point. Yeah, do we bind ourselves in ethics too rigidly at the cost of, of something that's inevitably going to bind us? And as you say, do you have a worry that you could be held up by bureaucracy at some point ahead of good science that you feel is inevitable? I, I think that the way I try and think about this is that to create a safe um, solution, to create a safe solution you need to have a ton of investment go into the to the to the scientific work and that investment will only be applied if there is a really meaningful problem that has to be solved and and sadly some some return that can be probably made on the tail end of it um so that limits the, the application space for this so i i would certainly say that for the really meaningful problems hopefully through a mixture of philanthropic uh, agencies and, and governments and private investment safe solutions will be found as fast as they can be for for other enhancements um more sort of optional enhancement you'll get we'll get there it'll take longer but there will be people who will attempt them on in a very much an unregulated way and and i think that's part and parcel of of the technology as with any technology mm. i think ollie's ollie's does touch on an interesting point because i assume because of the, the technology lag and the process lag and the approval lag, um, let's say some of the, the things you're working on now come into the mainstream in six to ten years. Because you've been working so hard and, and EVA is improving so quickly, you can almost imagine that once it, the first ripple of things do come through, it could J-curve within three to five years, which would be fascinating. Um, I think there's a nuance there that's worth worth pointing out, and, and, it's, and it's something that really frustrates me, um, and it's the fact that We'll be building these systems that can iterate on biological solutions incredibly rapidly. But th in those instances, the regulatory framework is not set up so that V1, V2, V3, V4 can be shunted through in a, in a safe and rapid way. Right. Uh, I think the issue is you get technology lock-in. So it, if it costs you 20 million to take a new product to market through an incredibly rigorous a regulatory process there's no incentive for you to 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 build the v2 until your patent expires or just yeah. just based on on the cost profile so that's where wetware does differ significantly from um from software certainly within the therapeutic space it's obviously not a problem for unregulated spaces 
Well, it is frustrating because I think technology gets... Oh, God, if you did the equivalent, let's say, of what Facebook has been doing in your space, there'd be huge ethical implications of that. And unfortunately, as you say, the software space can can iterate and sort of apologise later. Um, and so I think they kind of get an unfair advantage. And, and it's very clear to us as we face, um, I guess, regulations around GDPR, that there's a bit of a slow understanding of what's actually happening in the space versus where the regulatory bodies are, which seem to be slow to catch up. In some cases, I imagine they don't simply do not understand the technology they're even trying to legislate for. I mean, I think I think it speaks to to the way in which humans perceive risk. So, I wouldn't. I mean, the regulatory regulatory bodies are there for a good reason, in the sense that they they protect people from from dangerous products. How the regulatory agencies are weighted in terms of um, the the cost of going through a regulatory process versus the the opportunity that you're missing out on, in the sense that it does prevent the development of, of products that could otherwise be used to benefit humanity is a really interesting balance and I'm, and I'm not sure how how well how well it's working today in in the sense that the cost of taking a drug to market has ballooned mm. o- over the last decades um, it's all about novel recombinations now it seems like it's a lot cheaper to recombine two existing approved drugs for a 12 percent gain in efficacy over actually creating something brand new that needs to go through 10 to 15 years of commercialization yeah so i I think the question is is what would the world look like if if the regular if the regulatory agencies were set up such that it was possible to safely take new products to market uh very rapidly and innovate on on these kind of wetware technologies in the way that we we innovate in software it's it's um it's obviously not an easy problem to solve and i think i think the regulatory agencies are working really hard on it i think just the challenge there is how do you balance safety with the, the cost of action versus the cost in action how do you how do you keep people safe while simultaneously um not disadvantaging those who could benefit from these therapies and and that's where you get into really interesting therapeutic areas like how do these sorts of technologies have the potential to increase lifespan mm. so it, it, in in the sense that it would be very difficult to take a um uh, a drug to increase lifespan to market in the sense that the regulatory agencies would say is this, is there a real pain point here and now it, in in some ways yes in the in the in the sense that if everyone could live a lot longer that's then then by virtue of the fact that you haven't taken it to market you're denying people those extra years but on the other side of things if that drug actually harms that person then then you know it's it's all downside so yeah i think mm. i think it's interesting to see how these different regulatory frameworks play out uh, in different um, indications. I want to lighten the tone for a second. Hmm. Um, you alluded to sci-fi earlier, and you know there are a plethora of examples of gene editing and genetic engineering in sci-fi. Um, and they're all, as you said earlier, ways of examining our own humanity as we are now. But to many people, what we're talking about now sounds a bit like sci-fi. And I guess the future will end up resembling sci-fi in some sense is there any particular piece of sci-fi that you think we may end up resembling you know i've got frank herbert's june gattaca brave new world the the replicants in blade runner even i think the the rock's new film rampage so the way i the way i see this is is that even today i agree with you in the sense that it really feels like we could potentially be already living in some kind of science fiction novel mm. And I think that's a product of the fact that the rate of technological advancement 
uh, is faster than it has ever been before. I think that's only, as you say, going to going to increase. Mm. And the trajectory that mankind is on is 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 very unclear to me. Mm. Are you optimistic? Mm. You know what? I uh, <laughs> am I optimistic? So I see some interesting trends. So in in biology, we, whenever we were producing a new protein, we would grow up a uh, a liter of of bacteria, and, and you'd leave it overnight. And when those bacteria first go into that fresh sterile media, they divide exponentially, you know, mm. dividing every 20 minutes. And the objective there is, is how fast can you eat the nutrients and grow? When you come back in the morning, they've used up all the nutrients. Uh, it's completely changed uh, their gene expression and they've all started fighting and competing and, and maybe they've started trying to spoil, you know, basically go into do- a dormant state. And, and humanity is on a similar trajectory mm. in, in the yeah. way that we are sucking resources out of the planet uh, and we're now in, 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 the, in the situation where we're facing resource limitation. In this environment, I think this is the driver for uh, innovation. And, and it will either be the case that we can innovate our way out of the problem or, or alternatively, maybe we have to move planets. I think, I think you're right about the inevitability of having to innovate through. I, I did some research for a future podcast we're going to do on the industrialization of food. And, and I don't think it looks very good. And I think the only way I can see that is the lab-grown meat technologies. Well, I think... Would it be interesting in terms of a binary split of your vision on the future? Would you sit on the side of a robotic future or, or, or biologically enabled future, or do you see uh, a more I think, hybrid space? I think there's, there's a continuum between them. I mean, what's the most efficient way to trans- transport a human between planets? And the answer is in bits, so mm. uh, as in as in to ones and zeros, so to sequence the genome uh, and then resynthesize it at the other end. If that's your if your objective is to yeah is to recreate the humans and and equally, the way I see biology. Uh, I see biology not as a separate branch of matter in its own right, but as really just another engineering substrate. It's just it's just that the components of, of biological systems are are smaller and they self-assemble. But it's 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 no different from uh, the table that we're sitting at or the chairs we're sitting on. Mm. They're just it's just a different form of engineering, and and there's data and knowledge in both domains. And I think I think the really exciting part of of this whole debate is is and technological advancement is what happens at that interface and what happens when we realize and appreciate that life isn't something separate it's part of the same continuum it's a very interesting way of thinking about it you look like you had something to say already there was something that i wanted to ask um that is sort of aside from all the science and the ethics we've been talking about is just your learnings and your experiences from being a scientist to managing a big software company and because a lot of our listeners will be listening um hoping for insights that we're going to help them build their own company yeah so that transition from academia to yeah. the to the startup world i would say it's really fraught with challenges in the sense that when you're doing a phd you're trying to solve a really difficult problem by yourself and when you're trying to build a company you're trying to assemble the best minds to to solve a problem in a collaborative way mm-hmm. and and they're very different ways of attacking a problem and i would say that one of the steepest learning curves for me has been around how to uh, how to ex- assemble groups of exceptional individuals who are much more talented than me on on any of the individual tasks and to be able to to empower them to 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 find really compelling solutions that knit together into uh, a greater whole mm. that that's a real challenge and in a sort of a motivational sense, when when you look back at your previous self, have you surprised yourself in the fact that you've managed to, to realise it? Because, so I mean, you, you, you were young. I mean, you are young. And you, you were young when you started out in the whole thing. 
Yeah, so so it's been an most incredible journey for me. I think um, one of the things that has really really got me through everything because there have been a lot of highs and a lot of lows mm. is is we did a a small financing round in um, 2014, mm. just um, a tiny amount of money from from friends and family, and when you take money from your mm. from your friends and family, you're without realizing it emotionally signing yourself up to a deal where uh, you actually refuse to give up um, at all costs and if it's going to fail it's because you've you've expended um, every atom of your energy trying to build the company and and really I, I would say it's kind of that level of commitment that that's got us through and got to where we are now I mean uh, there was this really dark time where where s- several members of the team uh, myself included w- we were all on minimum wage for two years and we had to make decisions like do we do this experiment or, or do we take a home salary uh, uh, this month? But it, it's really that, that kind of persistence and refusal to fail that um, enables you to, to uh, really go through this long incubation time that I think a lot of deep tech companies have where they're heads down building the enabling technology that then enables them to solve some really difficult problems. Is that where the overarching purpose around your company also helps? Because I guess there's a sense that you can sacrifice yourself to a greater cause if you were solving something trivial then perhaps it may have got more difficult yeah so the reason that we get up in the morning is because we're not building instagram for dogs we're trying to harness evolution (laughs) with ai it's it's something the company is a vehicle through which we can do something meaningful and and i think if you don't have that then you may as well be doing something something else because building a startup is, is as you know really really tough and people i think underestimate their career goals sometimes i think there's prestige there's career titles and i've found none more fulfilling than knowing there's a purpose that you're striving for have you found that quite important in terms of retaining staff because one thing we've noticed is that the companies that can put a mission you know in the air that people really rally behind that have super retention i think if you can combine retention with excellence then then you're onto a winner uh, certainly certainly for us we've had very high retention i think that's that's a function of the fact that that people come and work at lab genius because they're really passionate about what they do and and i think one of the advantages of, of building your own company is you have the luxury of working with with passionate people and i and i say this during the onboarding of of every new member of staff that you know i want to come into work and and I want to work with passionate people and every day I can do that and and that's what makes getting up in the morning worthwhile. And I imagine you have to be able to delegate a decent amount of autonomy given the complexity of the tasks because you cannot be, you need to hire as you said better than you so do you have a culture of just letting people get on with their own thought experiments and investigations within the remit of what you're trying to? Absolutely and and I'd say that that's that's exemplified at all levels of the organisation so it's probably worth talking a little bit about our, our CSO, uh, Harry Rickaby. He um, he didn't take the conventional route through academia. I met him when he was just an undergrad and we worked together in the lab. And he was faced with this option of, should I do a PhD or, or should I go down the startup route? And he chose to go down the startup route. And the amount that that guy's achieved has been absolutely phenomenal. So he is a much better experimentalist than, than I'll ever be. But, you know, given the right resources, he's been able to invent incredible technologies, build an incredible scientific team around him, uh, both on the wet lab side, but also on the data side as well. Mm. And, and I think one of the most rewarding things about being part of a startup is where you're able to work with exceptional people and give them the resources so that they can 
um, really grow and reach their full potential. Um, and, and I think being part of a venture back startup, it forces this stretching function on individuals. So it will stretch you as far as you can possibly go. Um, and and it forces you to grow at, at a really terrific rate. And I guess that touches on to a point that we'll probably lead into now, which is the, the lifestyle around your routine, because you're uh, a father and you have a wife, which I imagine is also very important support. But in terms of how you juggle multiple responsibilities, uh, how do you find the balance between that and, and what's your routine? Do you have any sort of set way of getting yourself off a, a, a problem that you face? Yeah, so interesting question. I would say... It's all part and parcel of, of the same thing. I think I think when you're throwing yourself into into a startup, it sort of does become your life to some extent. And uh, my family is 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 very actively involved in the sense that uh, they they always supported me when I was going through my studies. My my sisters, for example, uh, put you know a small amount of their savings from their inheritance from our grandmother into the company when uh, we were raising that small round in 2014. Uh, my mother, who's uh, an editor, proofs every investor letter before it before it goes out. <laughs> so my whole family is incredibly supportive, and, and no one more so than than my wife, who uh, really does enable me to to get up at the crack of dawn every day and and get back late at night, and 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 really does support me support me through it. And I'd say that that's part and parcel of building a startup as well in the sense that it's not just you but it's actually everyone around you who enables you to 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 work on the really hard problems yeah because there's, there's a classic example of the the ceo always looking like the poster chart for the company and it's it there is a huge support structure that lets uh, you know imagine what elon musk has five kids or something it's like well if he was required to actually go and pick them up from school and, and really be hands-on you know i'm sure there's a good support network that allows him to I think there are three elon musks there aren't just one I, I think that's a good point and it also you know raises you know what what's the role of the the, the ceo and i think there is a bit of a fallacy in, in human culture where we, we do want to celebrate individuals mm. um over above groups of people and you know even opportunities like just coming to to chat with you guys on this podcast i I, i'm kind of the front of house of the company but actually you know it's the guys and girls um the the men and women at at the office um in doing the programming doing the wet lab research doing the strategy that they're actually the ones who, who are making this thing happen and and really it's it's my role not not to not to say that this is this this company is in any way kind of a deterministic um, a deterministic product of of doing a uh, undergrad masters and PhD, but it's more a function of 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 bringing together excellent people to work on really meaningful problems. And would you go into the bits of components of the dose about any books or recommendations? Um, I'd like to know what your favourite sci-fi book is. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's a really tough question to answer in the sense that there there isn't one. You can have favourites. Have you read Dune, the Dune series? The Dune series is phenomenal. They're weird. They're, they're is the one with a massive worm on the cover that comes out of... Is, possibly. It's the one with the massive worm. Yeah. Yeah, so the beauty of the beauty of science fiction is is that it enables us to explore explore things that, that could exist that, that don't pretend, that don't exist currently. And I think the actually probably the most powerful aspect of science fiction is is where it actually tells us something something about ourselves that, that we didn't previously know so it's almost like um it shows a mirror on our own humanity but in a different domain so it's often the case of sci- science fiction is a thought experiment to if if our world was structured slightly differently how, how would we discover something about about ourselves mm-hmm. we didn't know and, mm-hmm. and that's the aspect of science fiction uh that, that i really love mm-hmm. 
in terms of sort of a more uh, non-fiction inspirational books anything like that because there's there's sort of motivational books and stuff like that but if somebody wanted to kind of get up to speed with the science behind what you do in a non-fiction sense are there any good books or do they need to go read white papers and and academia i would if you're interested in biology or synthetic biology then you need to buy david goodsell's uh, book called the machinery of life and he is not only a spectacular scientist but he's also a brilliant artist mm. and he brings the world of the of, of nanoscale life to life through these incredible illustrations and, and a beautiful narrative so that is the book that that i've lent to several members of, of my company and i think is, is really worth um really worth getting and is there anything that you've read that helped you make that transition from being scientist to ceo i think the best thing that's helped me make that transition is is well it's been a slow process i think initially it's been through making a ton of mistakes uh, and more recently i would say after we got our seed investment i was fortunate enough to to be able to put together a syndicate of the what i believe are the very best investors across uh, west coast europe asia and actually working with those individuals has massively increased my rate of learning so that that has probably been the single biggest impact on my ability to transition uh, mentally from mm-hmm. thinking like a scientist to try and think like a like a ceo mm-hmm. and i guess last but not least um we like to try and give the uh, you know our, our guests the opportunity to ask anybody who may be listening um about something they could do to possibly help you on your way, whether that be, uh, I know you're hiring somebody new or whether it be uh, a general awareness of more scientists getting into the field. Um, So if there's anything anybody listening to this podcast could do to help you on your mission or anything like that, what would that look like or be? I'm always interested in speaking with anybody who's interested in the magic that happens at the interface of biology and technology. So be that person a machine learning expert, uh, maybe they're an investor, maybe they're a full stack software engineer, uh, anyone who, who is really passionate about that interface, I, I, I'm always happy to, to, have a, to have a beer with. And how can people reach you? Best way to reach me um, is probably my email, email. which is james at labgenie.us. It's a great email. It's a great company name, actually. It's got a nice ring to it, I think. Aspirational. Mm. Um, but thank you very much for coming on, James. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, to speak to somebody so humble doing something so uh, meaningful. Um, so, yeah, I look forward to hearing more about your journey as you continue. Thanks very much for Thanks having me. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, all your ed, at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, A review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.